A most remarkable thing happened to my wife yesterday. We were lying there, and she turned over and looked over into the face of a 40-year-old. A 40-year-old. And it was me. And I'm 40. And I can't believe it. You know, I was just thinking, how in the world is it possible that I could be 40 at this point? Now, many of you are sitting here and you're so kind to say, hey, Adam, if you think the first 40 went fast, just wait. And I appreciate your kindness. I appreciate your uh, wanting to say something positive, And that scares me to death. I was, uh, I was thinking about when I turned 30. I remember very clearly when I turned 30, I remember that I wanted to be 30. In fact, I couldn't wait to be out of my 20s. As a preacher, I couldn't wait to no longer be in my 20s. And so I remember turning 30, and it was a Sunday, and Julie had thrown a little surprise gathering at the church building after services that evening. And I remember my parents were there, and I had no idea that people were going to show up, and we had a a good time celebrating my 30th birthday, and then about 10 minutes later, I turned 40, and uh, it's pretty remarkable, pretty remarkable that how that happened so quickly, and I know that my kids, my boys, they look at me, and, and they think, 40, man, you're going to be dead in a couple of weeks. I, I know how they look at me, because that's how I looked at my parents when I found out they had turned 40, but I've had 40 on the brain for a little while, been thinking about it. I'm not afraid to turn 40. I'm not bothered to turn 40. I'm just one day closer to heaven. It really doesn't bother me. I'm just amazed at how quickly that seemed to happen. And I'm not, uh, again, I'm not concerned about it, but I've had 40 on the brain. And you know, the Bible uses 40 a lot. 40 is kind of a big number that we find throughout. You could take the life of Moses and the Bible easily divides it into three sections of 40. He was in Egypt until he was 40. And then he was herding a herdsman for another 40 years. And then for the next 40, you've got him leading the people out of Egypt and through the wilderness. And so his 120 years easily divide into 40 years. If you recall, it was Moses who was up on the mountain with God for 40 days and 40 nights. And he didn't eat and he didn't drink. And he was receiving the law of God up on the mountain. You recall that Caleb was 40 years old when he was sent as one of the 12 spies into the land of Canaan to spy it out. He was 40 years old. And you recall that those spies came back out and those not named, Joshua and Caleb, said, there's no way that we can go into that land and conquer it. And you remember God said, I'm going to punish you one year for every day. And they'd been in there 40 days spying out the land. And so God punished them for 40 years wandering about in the wilderness, waiting for those older generations to pass away before God's people could enter into the promised land. You go through the book of Judges and you will find that God allowed the land to lay fallow for periods of 40 years on more than one occasion. You get into the New Testament and you remember that Jesus was fasting. He didn't eat or drink for 40 days in the wilderness before being tempted by Satan. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, we find that it was 40 days between the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus. Forty days He showed Himself to the, to the twelve. Forty days. Forty, 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 forty. It just continues as a theme throughout God's Word. But as you can see tonight, I have a specific forty on the mind. 
A specific 40 that I want to take a, a little bit to look at and examine. The 40 days and 40 nights that God would send rain upon the earth and He would cover the whole surface of His earth in water. And think about what is entailed in that and think about what led into that. I don't know about you, but Julie and I, and I bet this is true of some others of you parents, but both of our boys came home from the hospital and were put into a nursery decorated with Noah's Ark. A Noah's Ark theme. Both of the boys had that theme in their nursery. If we're not careful, Noah's Ark just becomes a children's story and it remains a children's story. We need to be careful about that because there are some great lessons to be learned. And tonight I want to take the flood mentioned in Genesis 6 through 8 and I want us to give some thought to it and some of the great lessons that we learn from the great flood. We are talking about Noah, as Brother Danny read for us in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7. The Bible calls him a great hero of faith. But more than Noah, tonight in the flood, I want you to see the God of Noah. And so let's take the flood and let's just go through it. Let's break it down and let's learn some lessons together as we go through and examine some of, again, what you know, but I want to look at tonight. In Genesis chapter 6, if you'll turn there, we'll be spending a great deal of time in the book of Genesis. And so go ahead, please, and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, and let's just begin with the cause of the flood. What, what would lead up to the flood? Why would God flood the earth with water? The Bible says that the earth was corrupt. This is what the Bible says, beginning in verse number 5 of Genesis chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth, and He was grieved in His heart. And so God said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. And so He speaks here of the fact that it was full of wickedness. That's what it says in verse 5. Now you drop down to verse 11. And the Bible says that the earth was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence through them and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So I want you to get the picture of what is going to lead God to destroy the earth, to flood the earth with water. And you see words such as wickedness, and you see violence, and you see corruption. God looked down and the Bible says that He saw that the thoughts of men were only evil continually. You and I think we've seen some terrible things. You and I think that we have seen corruption and we have seen violence. I don't think we've seen anything like it was exactly in the days of Noah, where the thoughts of men are only evil continually. Think about what that would have looked like. And God says, for this reason, I am going to destroy the earth. Now, keep your finger there. And this is a verse we'll reference more than one time tonight. Let's go ahead and read it together. In 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, you know this is where Noah is called a preacher of righteousness. But notice what it says about the people of his day. In 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, We're picking up in the middle of a sentence, but Peter says, "...and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, 
a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of, catch it, the ungodly. You have wickedness. You have corruption. You have violence to describe the world. And here the Bible uses the word ungodly. These are people who are going completely against God. This is the picture of the world that Noah grew up in. This is a picture of the world that Noah lived in. It's a picture of the world that God finally says, I've had enough of it and I'm going to flood it with water. That's my next question though. Before the floodwaters came, did God provide any kind of warning? Well, we have just looked in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5 and we see that Noah is called a preacher of righteousness. And so here he is as a preacher and obviously he is preaching and what is he trying to do? He's trying to get people to repent, to turn around, to turn to God. He's trying to get ungodly people to respond with godliness. So certainly there's warning there. As was read for us again a moment ago in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7, the Bible says that Noah was moved with godly fear and certainly uh, there is involved in that his willingness to tell people about God. But I want you to go with me up a couple of verses in Hebrews chapter 11. And I want you to give this some consideration because this tells us a lot about the long suffering of God. This is what the Bible says. Now, Noah, if you do some counting in Genesis chapter 5, there's a genealogy that's given. And if you do some counting and you start with Adam being number one and you can count to 10, when you get to 10, you will find the name Noah. All right, so Noah is 10 coming down from Adam. But the Bible is going to tell us about number 7, and his name is Enoch. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 5, the Bible says that by faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. It's an interesting study to do a study of Enoch. He lived for 365 years and he never died. God just took him away. Can you imagine being Enoch and, and you don't have to go through death? You don't have to really get old in his day and time. He wasn't old and he was just taken because God saw him that he pleased God. Now let's go one more place in the New Testament and read again about Enoch. Go with me over to the book of Jude. And Jude only has one chapter, but drop down to verse number 14. And notice what Jude has to say about Enoch. This would be Noah's great-grandfather. He was not there when Noah was born. Noah never would have met him face to face. But this is what it says about Noah's great-grandpa, Enoch, in Jude chapter 1, dropping down to verse number 14. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His saints. To do what? To execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them, and of all of their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. Did you count ungodly in that verse? About four times we find the description of the people living in the days of Enoch. Four times they're described as being ungodly. Catch this. Enoch is pictured as one who is trying to get people to repent, right? He is preaching to people. He's trying to turn people around. 
How long did God wait from Enoch trying to persuade people to repent? How long before he flooded the earth? The answer? Almost 700 years. You think God is impatient? You think that flood was just a whim? You think God just decided one day, you know what? I'm going to send a flood. I'm not even going to provide a warning. I'm telling you, he provided a warning. Inequally, 700 years before that flood, God provided a warning. As we find in Genesis, God says, I'm going to give him 120 years before I flood the earth. Noah, Noah didn't just put that ark together overnight. He didn't just have a kit where he could put it together, did he? I mean, it took a lot of time. There's a sermon that's being preached the whole time that he's constructing it. God is giving people a warning. He is trying to get people to turn around. He doesn't want to flood the earth, but he knows that's what it's going to come to. But no one could look him in the eye on the day of judgment who was living in the days of Noah and say, God, we just didn't know this was coming. God, you weren't fair. He was fair. He is fair. He will always do what is right. He provided warning. He provided plenty of warning. And we need to be reminded of how great and long-suffering our God really is. But that's the cause of the flood, ungodliness, wickedness. The thoughts of an intense of the hearts were only evil continually. There was corruption and there was violence. And then you have this wonderful verse, don't you? That's the picture of the world that Noah and his children would have grown up in. And then you get to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8, and the Bible says, but, that is a very important word, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. The Bible says that Noah found grace in the eyes of God. God looked down and he saw Noah and he, uh, he had favor toward Noah. I think the next logical question is why? What was there that was so special about Noah? You see, when you set this up by looking at words such as violence and corruption and wickedness and ungodliness, and you understand that that's where Noah was and what he was growing up in and what what he had seen his whole life, and then you see this in verse number 9. Noah, the Bible says, was a just man. He was a just man. Other translations use the word righteous And it signifies that he was treating his fellow man right. How many times do you think Noah was treated right by his fellow man? How many examples do you think Noah had of someone treating him right? And yet the Bible says that he treated men right. The Bible says that Noah was blameless or perfect in his generations. The idea there is is Noah didn't have any bad habits that you could pin on him. And yet I wonder how many bad habits did Noah see around him every day? I mean, you see what he grew up in, and here is a man who was able to separate himself from the rest of the world, right? He treated men right, even though he was treated wrong. He didn't have bad habits, though there were bad habits all around him. And the idea then is Noah walked with God. Noah's confidence and trust were in God. 
Young people, listen to me. We need to be careful about those that we surround ourselves with. We need to be careful that that those that we are friends with have good habits. Uh, We need to be careful that those uh, that we are around treat others the way that God would want others to be treated. But you can't use the excuse of my friends made me do it. I believe we find Noah as one, the Bible says, who found favor in the eyes of God. He may not have had great examples to follow, but was himself a great example for others to emulate. Those are the kind of people that we need to be striving to be. Because, you see, his confidence wasn't in men. His confidence wasn't in others. His confidence was in God. I trust God. And God bestowed him with favor. We need to think about Noah and his family and what he would have gone through. And again, in chapter 2 and verse 5 in the book of Hebrews, we find that he was a preacher of righteousness. Think about it again. I'm asking you to consider the fact that you preach for a hundred years. You preach for a century and no one responds outside of your family. To a less heroic character, that is a waste of time perhaps. I have been trying to get people to come to the Lord. I have been trying to get people to follow God. I have been demonstrating through my life an example that others can follow. And I can't get anybody to get inside the ark outside of my family. (laughs) And yet, when the door of that ark was closed, and he looked into the face of his wife, And he looked into the faces of his sons. And he looked into the faces of his daughters-in-law. Don't you suppose there was a sense of achievement felt in Noah? One of my favorite words that Brother Mike used in his series, and it was a wonderful series, was the, the word stewardship. I think Noah and his wife looked and they understood the stewardship given them from God and their children. And his sons and their, and their wives were in the ark. You say what you want to say, but he got his children home. They had someone to follow. Noah may not have, but his sons did. And you think about that and what they saw. And what they saw their father go through. And the trust that they themselves had in God as well. And you think of Noah in Genesis chapter 6 and verses 17 and 18. And God says to him, Behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh, in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But, again, key word, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Noah, as you think about him, was one who was worthy in the eyes of God to establish a covenant with. I wonder if God would look at me and say, Adam, I want to establish a covenant with you. How am I seen in the eyes of God? Noah stood out from all who were living on the face of the earth. I want to strive to be more like Noah and demonstrate a faith, a confidence and trust in God that he expressed in his life. Now, as we continue to move through this, I want you to think about the ark, and I want you to think about her inhabitants. This is one of my shorter points. 
I just simply want you to see that top line. I think it's really important. When we think about the ark that was built, we need to understand that God was the architect. Noah was just the builder. Noah didn't come up with the specs. Noah didn't come up with the design. It was never his idea. It was never his plan. He just simply understood that this is the way that God wants it done. God was the architect. Noah, this is the way that you're going to build it. It's one of the points that we come back to, and I think it's extremely important. But notice the specs, right? In verse number uh, uh, 14, God says, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and outside with pitch. This is how you shall make it. Here are the specs, right? The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, it's width 50 cubits, it's height 30 cubits, and you shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above, and set the door of the ark in its side, and you shall make wood lower, second, and third decks. Well, there are words there that you should underline. You should just know these words. The wood, the rooms, the pitch, the width, the height, the, the length, the window, the door, and the decks. Noah, this is exactly the way that it's going to be made. If it's going to, to work, this is exactly what you have to do. And then you find, most importantly, the Bible says in verse 22, So Noah did. All that God commanded him, so he did. God gave instructions. Noah did not question. He simply obeyed. What a lesson for us to learn. When God gives instructions... Don't question, just do. It's always going to be for your best. That's all he's looking out for. Noah, I'm telling you, this is exactly what you have to do. This is exactly how it's going to work. This is exactly what you need to do because I know exactly what's about to take place. You don't. God designed it. We simply need to obey what the designer has designed. And that's it. Now... (laughs) I think it's interesting to think about the animals, right? And you ask about the animals that are inside the ark, and, and you think about uh, eight people taking care of all of these animals, and what's life like inside the ark as they're going about for a full lunar year, 365 days. You know, what is it like inside the ark? Well, again, God gives these very specific instructions. You're going to bring two of every kind of animal, a male and it's female. And in fact, uh, of clean animals, you're going to bring uh, seven pair not just, uh, uh, again, the, the unclean animals, but of the clean animals, you're going to bring seven pair. And so people have asked, can that really be? Is it really possible? Is it possible that God could get all of these animals onto the ark, along with all of their food, along with these eight people, and all of their food? Is it really possible? Listen, I don't know. I, I, I don't know much about these kinds of things, but there are those who do. I don't know. Some of you may have been to that Ark Encounter. It's on the list of things to do. I'd like to go and see it myself. It's outside of Cincinnati, Ohio. It is a a replica built to about the size of Noah's Ark. Can you imagine the size of such a thing? And uh, again, this is perhaps uh, pretty close to what it may have looked like. And if you go, I am told, to the Ark Encounter and you're able to walk through it, they very easily are able to explain exactly how Noah would have fit all of the animals on those decks, even with room left over. If you can't make a trip uh, the next uh, little bit to see the Ark Encounter for yourself, may I offer this suggestion. Here is a brother in Christ, Brandon May. He's a West Texas kid, a wonderful, wonderful person. 
uh, thank the world of him. Does a lot of work for World Video Bible School and some other uh, areas of work. And uh, Brother Branion, if you're on uh, PTP 365, you've got a couple lessons at your disposal uh, that Brother Branion has done. And he looks at the reality of Noah's Ark. If you're an Amazon Prime member, you can pull up, uh, I believe it's four episodes on Amazon Prime, and you can watch this for yourself. The reality of Noah's Ark. And Brother Branion, uh, very nearly a rocket scientist, he's a, he's a really, really smart person, he has done all the kinds of research, and he has shown, again, yes, it is possible, in fact, with room left over, to get all of those animals onto the ark. You can pay attention, you can look at those things, and, and you can, uh, again, weigh that evidence out for yourself. But I'm telling you, if God said it's possible, then it absolutely is possible, and it happened. Now, think about the flood. Go to chapter 7 in the book of Genesis, and we're just going to start reading in verse number 1. The Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me. You see how many compliments are paid to this man? I can see that you're righteous before me in this generation. And you shall take with you seven of each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female, and seven each of the birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, that's a week, I will cause it to rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. There it is again. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters were on the earth. I don't think he worried about his 40th birthday. So Noah with his sons, his wife and his sons' wives went into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds and everything that creeps on the earth. Two by two they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. Listen, in the 600th year of Noah's life... In the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all, listen, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. How do you picture that in your mind? I think that we may uh, at times be guilty of thinking, well, this is just a, you know, your, your average downpour. And it just downpoured for 40 days and 40 nights. Listen, you can get a lot of water. You can get a lot of water if it rains for 40 days and 40 nights. But the picture that, that is painted here in God's Word is not just a, a little downpour for 40 days and 40 nights. The Bible says that the great deeps were opened up. Now think about what that means. You've got water exploding upwards from underneath. And you've got, the, the Bible says, the heavens Opening up. Think about that. Think about what that would have been like. I mean, we're getting a lot of water just a deluge. It's indescribable how much water God would have released to cover the surface of the whole earth and to think about the depths of which it was covering mountaintops over the face of all the earth. This is what God has done. Again, I'm no geologist. I don't know a lot about a lot, but a few years ago, uh, Julie and I and the boys took a trip to the Grand Canyon. Now, I was a little skeptical before I went to the Grand Canyon. You know, of okay, it's a big hole in the ground, and okay, we'll go look at it, I guess. But w- once you're there and once you see it for yourself, I mean, 
the pictures just don't do it justice. It's, it's a remarkable thing to see, and I encourage you to go and see it. That thing is a mile deep. The Grand Canyon is a mile deep. You have to get in some very specific locations to be able to see the river that is flowing through it. I mean, it's way, way down there. And you can't see it just by looking over the edge in all, all places. You've got to really be searching for somewhere to look down to see a mile down there, the Colorado River. I mean, listen, I'm just a common sense kind of guy, but I'm just telling you that I don't think that Colorado River formed the Grand Canyon. I don't think there's any way the Colorado River formed the Grand Canyon. I'm just very certain of that. One of the things that really stands out about that trip is walking around the rim. You're, you're, you're in an arid, uh, dry, very dry place. You're elevated. I didn't realize the Grand Canyon sits up as high as it does in elevation. But you're sitting around and it's, it's just dry everywhere that, you, everywhere that you look. It's just rock and dry. But all around the rim... Everywhere you look, almost, I mean, you could see it so often, fossils around the rim. And do you know what the fossils were? Aquatic life. Water life. It wasn't lizards and scorpions. It was water life. Sea creatures fossilized around the rim of the Grand Canyon. What does that tell you? There's a lot of water there at some point. A lot of water in that area. How do you explain it? I explain it with the flood. God calls Noah into the ark. Noah, come in with your wife and your sons. They experience the 40 days and 40 nights. As I mentioned, they are in the ark for a period of 365 days. Isn't that interesting? One full lunar year... They spend in the ark 365 days, and then God calls them out of the ark. And in Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 through 22, God makes a promise. He says, I will never do that again. I will never flood the earth with water ever again. And you see the obedience of Noah and his wife. Brethren and friends, there's a lot more we could say about the ark tonight. There's a lot more we could say about the flood. There's a lot more, I promise you, that we could say about Noah and Noah's family. But before I sit down, I want you to think about this. I won't be long, but I I want you to think about what the New Testament has to say about the flood. Again, we're making this very relevant for our lives today. And if you go to Matthew chapter 24, you will find that Jesus very heartily endorses the account of the flood. He very much believed that the flood did take place, that Noah was a real historical figure, that God really did have that man build an ark, and that God really did flood the earth with water in the days of Noah. I know that because of Matthew chapter 24, especially, looking at verses 37 through 39. Jesus has now stopped talking about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and He has now begun to talk about when He is going to return the next time. And He says about His next return in the verse number 36, Of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. And then this He says in verse 37, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. 
For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. You want to know about the return of Jesus? He says it's going to be like it was in the days of Noah. It's just going to be another day. It's not going to look any different. You're going to wake up with plans and you're going to have every intention of keeping those plans. One of these days, maybe today, the Lord will come back. He says it's going to be as it was in the days of Noah. He's not announcing it. He's just letting us know. He's just providing warning, even as He did in the days of Noah. They didn't know the exact time But they had 700 years. Literally in the days of Noah, they had over 100 years to be prepared. We'll have no excuse if we're unprepared when Jesus comes back. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7, the Bible tells us that Noah was a man of faith. God commanded and Noah obeyed. He moved with godly fear. He moved with godly reverence. He loved God and he wanted nothing but to obey God to the saving of himself and the saving of his family. Is that your desire tonight? Is that your desire? Is your trust and confidence in God? Are you moving with godly fear? Are you obeying Him and doing what He would have you to do? Are you being an example that others can follow? Do they see your love and your trust of God? And are they willing? Are you willing to allow them to follow the example that you're presenting. But more than that, is your trust and confidence in God? Are you walking by faith? Is God pleased as He looks down on you tonight with your walk? Noah looked down, and God looked down and saw Noah. He had faith. The last thing I want you to notice about the flood in the New Testament is over in 1 Peter chapter 3, those familiar words. But, well, your Bible's always going to have these words. <laughs> Unless you just scribble them out or tear them out, that's on you. But God's Word is always going to read the way that God's Word reads. These words are always going to be there. They're always going to be true, no matter what you think of them. But God's Word will always say in 1 Peter chapter 3, in verse 20, picking up in mid-sentence, I understand who formerly were disobedient, the Bible says, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype, New King James, which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen to me. God is long-suffering. God waited in the days of Noah. He didn't just send the flood waters immediately. He waited. He waited while that ark was being prepared. That's a massive boat that's being prepared. And the people are watching it. And no, it had never rained so far as we can tell. But Noah was preaching through his building. And he's preaching through his words. And he's telling people, it's time to be right with God. And God waited. He is patient. He is a patient God. Nothing has changed about Him. This is His nature. He is faithful. He is uh, patient. But understand that destruction did come. 
He warned them that it might happen in the days of Enoch. He warned them it was going to happen in the days of Noah. And he carried through. Jesus said, so will it be when I come back. I'm coming back. He's coming. God is patient. But His patience is going to end. Jesus is going to come back. Eight souls, Peter says, were saved through. That is more literally by means of water. And so it's an interesting picture that's painted, isn't it? That the water is coming up from below and it's coming down from above and water is purifying the earth. God is using water to purify the earth. He's using it to wash away the unfaithful. He's using it to cleanse the earth, so to speak. And what is it doing? It's destroying everything in its path because water will do that. But the water, while destroying things underneath, is carrying Noah and his family above the destruction. It's carrying them above the destruction. And so Noah and his family are saved by means of water. They're floating above the destruction. And Peter says there is a like figure, an antitype, corresponding to this. Baptism now saves us. Water is what saves us from destruction. How are my sins washed away? It's in baptism. Baptism is what saves us. That's exactly what that verse says. And that's exactly what that verse will always say. Baptism. If you have a guilty conscience understanding the guilt of your sin, and you want to have a clean conscience in the, in the eyes of God, the way to clean your conscience is, is by cleansing your sin. And that is in baptism where you meet the blood of Christ. And your sins are forgiven. Acts 2 and verse 38. You see, Noah was not going to be saved without moving with godly fear. And no one today is going to be saved unless they move in faith by godly fear. Will you obey the commands of God tonight to be saved? Will you do what you must to respond to God before it is everlastingly too late? I love to think about the flood. It is not, you know, you think about the destruction that took place in the flood, all of the souls that were lost, and then I think about this. Last thing, I'm going to sit down. When the door was open and Noah walked off, can you, can you put yourself in those shoes in the world that he would have seen? Can you think about the way that the world looked when he walked in? And then the world, the way it looked when he walked out? And you think about what it took for God to cleanse and purify the earth. You think about what God had to do in order to take care of that. And then you think about infinitely more what He had to do to purify you from sin. God has done His part. Will you respond to Him tonight?